Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world, educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future generations. Hello and welcome to JogPod. Today we're joined by Dr Fiona Fairbrush, who's Human Geography Lecturer at Keeble College and Brasenos College at the University of Oxford. Thanks for being on JogPod, Fiona. Thank you for inviting me, John. Your research focuses on movements of people uh, and transport studies, but today we're going to be talking about um, migration, citizenship um, and the impact of Brexit. Yeah. all A-level geography specifications address aspects of migration. I had a quick look at all of the specs. So I can see this being particularly useful for, for any A-level geography teacher. But before we go into that, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about, about you, because I'm really interesting. You live in the Occitanie region of France. It's sort of a southwest by the Med, isn't it, really? It's bordered by the Pyrenees. Uh, mountains and the Mediterranean to the east. It's a beautiful area, uh, but you're, you're lecturing in Oxford. So how did that come about? Yes, you're right, John. I live in the Occitanie region of France and my research initially brought me here. So when I was doing my human geography doctorate um, with the University of Plymouth, I was very interested in how EU citizens move within the European Union through this notion of free movement. And I was very interested to examine how free this movement actually is. Or do those EU citizens encounter difficulties, encounter um, frictions, borders? And so to look at those questions, I decided to look specifically around British migrants living in France or who had moved to France. And that brought me to the southwest region of, of the country partly because most of the work that had been done on British migrants at that time focused on Britons in rural areas, out in the countryside. And I was aware that there were a number of Britons that were living in cities. Toulouse was one of those cities. They have a big um, aviation sector. Um, Airbus is based in Toulouse. And there were a number of workers um, from the UK who were seconded to Toulouse or sent on permanent contracts, moved to the area to take up new jobs. So there was a really interesting cohort of, of British people living in the city, and this hadn't been researched. And as we know, as researchers, we're always looking for something slightly different to examine, to expand our knowledge. So coming to the southwest, I could encounter Britons in the countryside and those in the city. Practically, I was also able to make connections with the University of Toulouse through some contacts at the University of Plymouth. So I had a, an academic grounding while I was in the country. So I came into the area and lived here for a year. And basically, I fell in love with the area. Um, and I kept returning. Um, once, I, once I had gone back to the UK, I kept returning to France, both for work and for 
leisure, personal reasons. And eventually I bought a property here. It felt right. I'd made a lot of friends here. It felt very comfortable. That's how I ended up living in the Oxygen region. When I finished my doctorate, I applied for a job at the University of Oxford, um, and I've been working there ever since. It's a job that I absolutely love, um, tutoring fantastic with, with working with small groups of students, and I just am able to manage this lifestyle of working in one country and living in another. Maybe that will change after Brexit, we'll have to see. Would you define yourself as a migrant then? That's an interesting question. Um, I think, first of all, let's think about what is a migrant. And if we take a very basic definition of someone who moves from one country across the national border to another country, then yes, I'm a migrant because I've moved from the place that I was born in and grew up in and I now live in France. But we're human geographers. We're social scientists. There's never one definition or the term. And what a migrant means is still something that is debated, and we need to think what it means in terms of people who actually move. Do they feel like migrants? What is it that makes them feel different? What is it that makes them feel um, at home? So I think when we look at the term migrant, we need to think how other people construct this term, not just that simple single definition. If we think about the way in which the media defines migrants, they often talk about immigrants. Mm. And the term emigrant and immigrant is really just a subset of migrant. It tells us a bit more about the direction of that movement. So an emigrant is someone who has left a country, and an immigrant is someone who has moved into the country. So if we take that basic definition, I'm also an immigrant in France. But if we start to look at the way in which the media represents immigrants in France, I don't fit that, that I don't fit those ideas of that kind of migrant because they're often people from further away, um, often people, people of color, maybe people of different religious background. So in, in this sense, we start to complexify, I think, that question about what is a migrant. Do I feel like a migrant? on an everyday basis? No, not so much. Life here isn't very different from what it was in the place that I grew up. I have friends here, I have leisure activities, my home is here. I feel like I belong. Being a geographer, so then a researcher, and a migrant, makes you ask much deeper questions of this than, than I think many people might. It is living in France, does living in France change your perspective on your work on your research or has it not made any difference at all it has changed my perspective on the work john and one of the ways in which it does is that i'm facing many of the similar issues processes experiences that the people i interview are also facing most of my research is based on in-depth interviews um, participating with people's uh, technique we call participant observation and ethnography, which is about living in the same environment um, as, as those people. I think living here, particularly in relation to Brexit, for example, I have to undertake similar processes as the people um, that I'm researching. And that can help me to develop a rapport quite quickly with some of the people I'm meeting. Um, it can help me to recognize some of the problems 
that they're facing and help me to show empathy towards that. It helps me to understand. So I think in many ways, living somewhere enables, facilitates that research process. But on the other hand, it also means that sometimes I might be so involved that it makes it very hard to take a step back and recognize what is often taken for granted. So the things that become normal to me, maybe even just French words that I might slip into conversation, they won't mean things to people who are not in the area or, or, or don't understand French. And so as an academic, I need to be very critical. And when I say critical, I, I mean I need to question all the time. I need to question the taken for granted aspects of my life and that of the people I'm interviewing so that it is not misrepresented in my research. One of the ways in which I would say that living in France has perhaps changed my perspective on my work or changed the process of how I work, it enables to me to be more critical. I, I, this is a slight aside really, but there's an article in The Guardian this morning about the number of UK citizens emigrating to the EU and it's risen by 30% since Brexit, although I know we haven't finished Brexit, but since the Brexit vote. So 30%, I think a greater proportion have gone to Germany. I haven't read it fully yet. And then Spain and then France. So you're in good company. There's an awful lot of people who are making that move. We might talk later about why, well, in fact we will, um, and, and try to delve into some of those, those reasons why people do move. But I know that your research looks at looks also at citizenship. So as you, be, as you become immersed in another country, the extent to which you would like to be involved more deeply as a citizen. So I've got, I've got a couple of questions about that really. First of all, what is citizenship? And, and why does it matter? I think is my first double barreled question. Okay, so citizenship, let me start with the most obvious definition. Traditionally, we see citizenship as a legal relationship between an individual and the state. It tends to be exclusive, so one has just one citizenship, and I'll talk about variants on that in a moment. What this legal relationship defines are the rights and responsibilities that an individual has to the state, such as the right to vote such as the responsibility to pay taxes, to pay social security. Um, in some countries, it's a responsibility to um, provide military service. And those rights and responsibilities are embedded within that citizenship, which we talk about at the scale of the nation state. So within France, within Germany, within the United Kingdom. Now that definition is rather top down. It's state led and it defines someone's status. It defines what they can and can't do, where they can travel. Why does it matter? Because it, um, it defines what people can and cannot do. And it matters because it's about inclusion and simultaneously exclusion. What do I mean by that? Well, citizenship includes the people who are given that title. It's a membership of that territory, of that state. But we know that with inclusion, we also have exclusion. And to define who belongs, we inevitably have to differ to those or from those who don't belong. 
So a citizen of the UK is not someone who lives and works in France, typically as a citizen of France. I, I'm simplifying this slightly. I think the other important thing to say about citizenship is that it is often taken for granted. We don't necessarily think about our citizenship unless it is taken away from us or unless it ceases to function as one would anticipate. That would be a very basic definition of citizenship and one that most people are familiar with. We all hold citizenship. But academics, um, geographers in particular, have been more and more interested in different forms of citizenship. And we start to see variations of this basic model that I've provided. So for example, we can talk about different scales of citizenship. In 1992, the European Union introduced European Union citizenship. So all citizens of the member states of the European Union also automatically became European Union citizens. And that um, gave them a certain number of rights, principally the right to free movement, to live and work in another country, another European Union country. It also gave them the right to vote in local elections in the country in which they were resident. There are um, some other rights um, in, involved in, and those can easily be found on the internet. What European Union citizenship doesn't offer are the responsibilities that we are familiar with from nation state levels of citizenship. So it differs somewhat from that traditional model. That's led some academics um, into debates about whether EU citizenship is truly a form of citizenship. And those are very interesting um, to follow up in, in, in different aspects of the work. So we can talk about different scales of citizenship. We can talk about local forms of citizenship. If you consider, John, you can vote in national elections in the UK. You can also vote in your local elections. How do you determine where you vote in local elections? Well, it's based on your residency. It's based on where you live. And that brings a local form of belonging or a local form of membership to um, a much smaller territorial unit than that national scale unit. So we've got local forms of citizenship alongside EU citizenship, national citizenship. Earlier on, I mentioned citizenship being exclusive. It's not always the case that we only hold one citizenship. Increasingly, it is possible to hold two citizenships or even three. And we talk about dual citizenship, and that's where people hold membership of, say, for example, the UK and of France simultaneously. And we see more and more countries granting dual citizenship. About 50% of countries across the world enable dual citizenship um, today. Academics have also been interested in considering citizenship through a social and cultural lens. And this is particularly interesting for human geographers. Rather than taking citizenship as a legal status, we can start to think about what it means for people who actually hold it. So geographers interested in socio-cultural forms of citizenship have been more interested in, in the way that individuals give meaning to being a citizen somewhere and the belonging that it, it can bring about. So for example, I live in France, I'm not a French citizen, but my life here, um, going, going to the shops and speaking French, and going out with friends, I feel as if I belong. And I feel perhaps a little different from someone who is a full citizen, my neighbor, for example. 
Now, that becomes very interesting to academics because on the one hand, there's no sense of legal citizenship, but there is a social sense of citizenship. I feel like I belong. This can work other ways in, the term, in terms of someone can be a legal citizen, but they may not feel as if they belong. And we see this in recent academic work, people of color, they may, someone may be a British citizen, but they don't look like the majority of the population who have white skin. Mm. And that can lead to forms of exclusion and a sense of not belonging to that majority population. And we talk about that perhaps in a way of socially, culturally, they don't feel as if they belong. So when academics look, or when, ge when geographers look at legal forms of citizenship, they also often consider social and cultural forms of citizenship alongside it, which are much more embedded in people's own sense of belonging. That's really interesting because it, it, it works on several levels. So there's a national level or a regional level and even, even a global level, a, a local level. You can, feel, you can feel inclusion in certain areas of a country, but then not in others. Yes, but, very much so. And we can see that um, quite richly in places such as Cornwall or maybe places in Wales, um, particularly where they, um, they speak Welsh, that they have, people may have a regional sense of belonging somewhere. And that can be more of a socio-cultural sense than a legal recognition of that. And it can last a long time, I suppose. I mean, I've been in Sheffield for over 40 years but I probably still think of myself as coming from the Northeast. And uh, yeah. my, my dad was Scottish, so very strongly Scottish. I haven't got a Scottish accent at all, but I don't feel necessarily Sheffield as much as <laughs> Stockton-on-Tees. Which becomes really interesting for an academic to further questions on that, because it's your strong sense of belonging about who you are and your identity. Now at that scale um, that you're talking about, regional citizenship, it doesn't necessarily give you any rights or responsibilities because it's not recognized legally. I wonder if I can ask you now about, um, you write about the diversity that exists within groups of British migrants and British citizens. So I wondered what the nature of that diversity was. I think it's two, twofold, or what I'd like to talk about today is twofold. First is that term British, and we problemized the term migrant earlier on. And just with that term British, we need to, to recognize that it's not always clear exactly what it defines, where the boundaries of that category lie. What I'm indicating here is something that's picked up in the British Nationality Act of 1981. And there are seven categories around the notion of, of Britishness. British citizens, British overseas territory citizens, there are British subjects um, and British protect, protected persons. Those are some of the categories. Now, each of those different categories might fall under a broad label of British citizen, British migrant, in a simplified way. But they, each of those categories have different rights and responsibilities. And uh, let me illustrate this with a specific example. I grew up in the Channel Islands. I'm, um, I'm from Guernsey. And I'm a British 
citizen. My passport says British citizen. But the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man are known as Crown Dependencies. They're not part of the United Kingdom. They're part of the British Isles. And as a Guernsey British citizen, I'm not able to vote in national elections. I can't vote for the Prime Minister. It makes sense when we recognise that Guernsey has its own states of Guernsey, its own legal representatives or parliament, if we need to give it a, a different name. So as a Guernsey citizen, Guernsey British citizen, I have different rights from a UK-based British citizen. So I think we just need to be careful when we use the term British migrant, British citizen, who are we including and who are we excluding? And again, why? let's think a bit more broadly, why does this matter? Well, Guernsey is not part of the United Kingdom and it's not part of the European Union. When the UK joined the European Union in 1973, special provisions were written up between the islands and the UK. And those stipulated that Channel Islanders did not have the right to live in the European Union. They did not have the right to benefit from the provisions that EU citizenship would bring unless they had descendants, so either their parents or grandparents were UK residents, or those Channel Island citizens had resided in the UK for five years. With these provisions, I am an EU citizen through links with my mother who was born in the UK, but my father has no such links, and his passport is endorsed with the words that, um, to the effect that he does not have provision, he, that he cannot benefit from provision of free movement. So we are both Channel Island citizens, we are both British citizens, but one of us has possibility of um, drawing on EU citizenship and the other does not. So where we draw these lines of who we classify as British citizen and recognising their diversity within that impacts then who we speak to in our research, we recognize the nuances of that categorization. And I have a separate strand of, of research that has um, interviewed, in, in which I have interviewed Channel Island um, British citizens. It's very complicated, isn't it? It's for a bear of very little brain like myself, that's really hard to get your head around. <laughs> the nuances are just uh, amazing. The nuances are incredible, and, and, and let's, let's think there are several categories of, of, of British citizenship within the British Nationality Act, several distinctions of, of, of British persons. Well, you draw, you draw a third aspect as well, don't you, the, um, to do with the experiences of British migrants. So we talk about a, a sort of legal status, but then you also... In your book, which we can do a reference to, which is coming out later, I'll, I'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes, you, where you talk about the different experiences that British migrants have, because they face different sets of experiences, that makes the whole experience, I think if I've got this right, different. So Britons in Spain face different sets of experiences from Britons in France, for instance. And so there are differences. And I've just wondered what comments you had about that and why you think that comes about. Okay, so let me just give a, a brief introduction to the book. Um, the book looks at the political agency of British migrants in the European Union and it compares and contrasts 
um, British migrants in Spain and British migrants in France. Now, that's... Yeah, let's just give the name of it. It's, the, it's called the political agency of British migrants, isn't it? Brexit yes. and belonging. That's uh, right, yeah. And we will put a link to that because it's due for publication in, um, in I think, late November and we'll be coming out with this in, um, I think, September. So it'll be just perfect for, for teachers to go and follow up on anything that we say that I think they find that they want to, to delve more deeply into. And you've co-authored it, haven't you? That's right. So Jeremy McClancy, who is an anthropologist at Oxford Brookes University, he has spent um, uh, several years researching British migrants in the Alicante province of Spain. And we joined forces um, with my work on Britons in southwest France to look at the differences and the similarities between these populations. And one of the things that we've tried to show in our work is that we need to move away from this idea of British migrants in Europe because British migrants in whichever country you look at experience things quite differently. Not only have you the differences of, of individuals based on age, family status, how and where they organize their work, some are able-bodied, some are disabled-bodied, there are people of colour. Not only is there that diversity, but these Britons are either moving, well, these Britons are moving to Spain and or they're moving to France. And with that, they face different bureaucracy within those countries. One of the key differences to highlight is that Britons moving to Spain have had to register when they arrive, they register as residents. But in France, there has been no similar system of registration. There was a voluntary program uh, where one could apply for a residency permit. And this means that after Brexit, when Britons are no longer um, European Union citizens, Britons in France need to justify their years of residency in that country whereas the majority of those in Spain already have residency cards and life continues a little more smoothly than it does perhaps for those in France. So when we talk about the difference, one of the differences is that people are moving to countries with their individual bureaucratic structures. In your 2019 paper, you this is the one called Local electoral rights for non-French residents. That's a case study of, of British candidates and councillors in French municipal elections where they felt a sense of place so much that they want to be um, a local politician. Is that, will that change with, with Brexit? I'm not sure I've, I've quite fully understood all the implications of all of this. Yes, it will change, John. Let me just explain why. As a European Union citizen, one has the right to vote in local elections in the country in which they are resident. So, for example, a, a British migrant moving to live in France would be able to vote in local French elections. They can't vote in national French elections, but they can vote in local French elections. And this was brought into being at the same time as European Union citizenship um, in, in 1992. With Brexit, which is a process of um, removing the UK from the European Union, it also means that British citizens will cease to be European Union citizens with the rights that that bestows. 
So any Britons who um, were councillors will no longer be able to stand um, as councillors. They will no longer be able to vote. That right is taken away. And that's really upset some British people. And in March this year, we had the first round of local elections, and this was the first year in which Britons were not able to participate. And some felt really disappointed, very emotional about having that right taken away. Because through participation, um, Britons had found that they developed a deeper sense of belonging to their local area. They talked about a sense of community. They put value into, or they, they, they experienced a greater value of the place in which they lived. They felt they could contribute to the place in which they lived, which was also about developing a, a much tighter bond with the people who, who lived and worked there. That's taken away. Yeah, it's, it's another ring, isn't it? It's an exclusion, another ring of them. They become apart, a separate group. Oh, no, 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 you, we, we're not involving you anymore quite so much. It's, yes, we said citizenship is about inclusion on the one hand, but exclusion on the other. And by taking away those European Union statuses from British migrants throughout the European Union, they are excluded often from those local practices, unless there is a law within that country that enables non-nationals to vote. And that is the case in, in some countries. Spain, for example, has recently introduced a law that enables Britons to continue to participate in local elections. And we talk about that as quite progressive and as a means of expanding citizenship rights. Um, you talked earlier about expanding citizenship rights, and, 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 and I know this paper, you were looking at four research questions. Um, so I, I'd just like to delve a little bit deeper with, with you on those. What, what were your four research questions that's, that underpinned this? So in that paper, I started off by considering who is included and excluded from participation in French municipal elections. And what we see in France is that citizenship is based on holding French nationality. So your, your rights to vote come through your citizenship and you are a citizen of the country if you are a French national. Now, that excludes all non-French nationals. And that was how things worked in France up until the European Union stipulated that any EU migrants would be able to vote in local elections. And that caused quite a lot of controversy in France because of their deeply held belief that citizenship could only be granted to French nationals. There's some um, discussion in academic papers that opening up citizenship rights to non-French nationals would perhaps undermine the culture, would undermine the traditions of the country. But France had to go along with the European Union and so France expanded its local franchise to include European Union citizens who were residing in France. So that was the first time in which residents in the country who are non-French nationals could vote. And that was a big that, that was a big step for France. It was a big step for some other European countries um, as well. So what we see after the European Union 
um, changes to the, the local voting laws is that in France, local elections, the participants of local elections can be French nationals and European Union citizens. But that continues to exclude a category that we call third country nationals, which are non-French and non-Europeans. Mm -hmm. So Australians or Americans or Algerians. Or British in the future, as we leave. British in the future, yes. So when we talk about British citizens losing their EU status, they thus become third country nationals. And that's an important part of the argument which are um, in that academic paper, which I'll, I'll come on to discuss. So the second um, question that I examined, what theoretical ideas have been proposed to expand voting rights? And this is recognizing that citizenship based on nationality is quite limiting and excludes many people who are residing in that country. And academics have put forward different ideas, but perhaps we could base citizenship on having a shared future so that we grant rights to people who may see themselves living there for at least 10 years. So they can invest into that, that local community, into that local place. Perhaps it could be based on residing somewhere rather than nationality. And there's a link here with citizenship more generally. Citizenship is typically granted at birth through your place of birth or through blood ties to your parents. But it can also be quite acquired later in life through proving um, a long period of residency in a country. And it can be acquired through marriage to someone of a different citizenship. And that acquisition through residing somewhere, so in France, for example, one has to reside in the country at least five years before you can apply to be a citizen of the country. If we think about um, residency as the basis of granting rights, citizenship rights, then we make it a much more inclusive sense of society at whatever scale we, we introduce those ideas. The third question I looked at um, addressed the principles which might underpin claims for Britons to retain their electoral rights. So recognizing that Britons are going to lose those rights, what ideas could we introduce that enables us to think about giving those rights back to Britons? As I say, in Spain, um, the country introduced um, a law, the country introduced a law through which Britons could continue to vote. In France, we haven't seen, to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a discussion around that yet. But if I look at the evidence from talking to Britons who have stood on their local councils, it gives them such a sense of integration and such a sense of belonging that it becomes very valuable as a way of adapting into their country, as, as a way of adapting to the local society. And so perhaps what becomes important here is a local sense of residency, a local sense of belonging. And maybe there's an opportunity to say, well, we can grant rights, um, we can expand voting rights based on residency, based on being resident somewhere. Of course, that makes it quite difficult. There are still exclusions. 
where do we define who is resident and who is not? Does someone have to be resident um, 12 months of the year? Or are they resident if they're only there six months of the year? Mm-hmm. So all these different options about how we include more people all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And those can be quite interesting, quite fun to debate with students. Finally, in that paper, I ask what are the implications if Britons are granted rights based on residency. Britons losing their EU citizenship potentially become third country nationals. They're non-French, they're non-European. They become part of the same category as migrants from other places outside of the European Union. If Britons begin to make claims for reinstating their voting rights, and there, have, uh, there has been some literature uh, on this topic um, in, in, in the national media already, then they're simultaneously making claims for other people who are third country nationals because they're asking to have rights granted as a non-French, as a non-European. And that argument can also be made by other nationalities who are long-term residents in the country. So it's perhaps what the paper really aims to do is to stimulate thought and discussion on this question. We call it alien suffrage, expanding voting rights to migrants, um, resident populations. And Brexit potentially acts as a pivotal moment to provoke this question. There's also a moral question whether we can take away the rights of people who've been able to vote and be able to participate in this way. I think if I moved, I'd want those rights. But I wonder if you have any feeling of the the people who do move and you see these TV programmes like Escape to the Continent, that's on BBC One and A Place in the Sun on Channel 4 and Escape to the Chateau, they're both Channel 4 programmes. It's about people who wanting to move abroad to start a new life. Um, and I, I, I just, I was looking at a, a blog actually that went with one of the, the programs that people were discussing their whole views on why they went. And it, it seemed to be promoting the idea, this is what one of them said anyway, promoting the idea that moving to Europe didn't have to involve any form of integration or any need to learn the local language. They were looking for places on um, urbanizations where they were 80% British, or here you can go to the bars down here and they'll serve you fish and chips. And I wondered how many of them, or I wondered what proportions that you've come across in your research uh, and um, Jeremy's research across France and Spain, about how many people want those sorts of rights to be able to vote do you get a sense of that do they feel that as part of their inclusion there's a mixture of responses um, to those kind of questions in my research Um, i have some statistics but not to hand of the number of people who who are voted on to be onto the council in the research that i've done among those people who have been invited to join the council or who have been councillors um, in the various um, in the various local elections. The numbers are relatively small. 
when we think about um, the number of, when we think about the potential numbers of, of people within that country, when we think about the potential numbers of, of British citizens who are resident in that country, what is important to draw out here is that Britons, particularly in rural areas of France, are often some of the most active migrants on the local councils of any other European nationality, bar French. It's really complicated. Um, and the number of people who'd want to get involved in politics in, in their local area here is, is small. That doesn't mean that they're not the sort of person who wants to be involved. But there's, a, there's a step change in them getting involved um, officially. We've, we've had discussions here that are delving into some really complex issues. And I think it's, it's potentially going to get even more complex. Brexit's such a dynamic process. Every time I open up the news, there's something different that has come out that we've got to consider. So it's constantly changing, and it really quickly dates the research that's being done. So I just wondered what advice you could give to teachers and students on how they might examine a contemporary event like this. That's a very good question, because some people can be put off studying a studying a contemporary event because they feel it hasn't ended and when something's come to an end we feel we can look back over the whole of it and give some nice neat conclusion but I think that's a little of a myth and we need to think that events rarely have a clear start point and rarely have a clear end point the impact of something can, can continue for years and years so I think one of the pieces of advice that I, I would always give students is to try and think of pro, um, try and think of situations such as Brexit. Um, we might be looking at colonialism. Um, to try and think of these less as sort of boxed moments that happened at a particular time and in a particular place, but think of them as processes that continue to change and have impact. So thinking about it in a dynamic way. And then we might think about how we go, then we might think how we can actually study that. And practically, we need to, we need to have in our mind a point at which we say, well, I will stop research because I need to write this up. So let, let's say I'm, I'm doing a three-month project, um, two months of the research, one month for writing up. It's really helpful if I say very strictly to myself, I, at the end of that two months, that's when I stopped doing the field work. And in the project, I just acknowledge that this analysis is based on, on research up to a certain point. We're very um, transparent about that. And we all recognize that that needs to be done. If we're researching something that's dynamic, we have to be flexible. So we have to be aware of what's going on in the news. We have to think about the impacts that might have on our participants and just building in the flexibility to how we adapt our research questions, keeping an eye on, on different forms of media to pick up on the emergent trends and to be able to follow those through the research. So may, just being flexible around a very dynamic process. One of the things I'm always minded to go back to is when Professor David Lambert was chief executive of the, uh, the Geographical Association. 
we were talking about critical thinking and decision making in geography. And he always talked about making decisions with confidence and certainty and being prepared to change your decision, which some politicians can't manage to do because it's, it's called a U-turn. But actually, confidence and certainty, I have new information and I need to reassess where my thinking. Yeah, and absolutely. that's a really good message, I think, for students, particularly A-level students, but students right the way through, that nothing in our discipline is fixed. And we, we need to keep looking and keep reassessing our decisions. I would agree with that very much so. Hey, well, thank you very much, Fiona, for giving us insight into what really is a rapidly changing and very emotive subject. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank, thank you. you very much, John. Hi, I'm Mark from the membership team here at the GA. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of JogPod, produced for you by the Geographical Association. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to JogPod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk.